battleground and it is law enforcement friday and we are off duty i'm jeff queen i'm your host sitting in for ivan garcia hidalgo this week as always on law enforcement friday we've got our good friend robert arce retired phoenix pd today we're bringing in a new friend jose Dela cruz who uh, is retired from the department of homeland security and is an explosives expert so maybe we won't blow this thing up too bad and coming in t- today also with us uh Special guest today, uh, Michael uh, Sugru, uh, retired uh, Walnut Creek, California sergeant, uh, also former uh, Air Force Security Forces officer. Michael, thank you so much for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Robert, you good today? Doing good. Thanks for having me on and welcome, guys. Yeah, Jose, thanks for being here. Uh, We'll try not to tell too many lies from the old days, buddy. Thanks. (laughs) Michael, why don't you uh, why don't you start us off? Uh, you you and I got connected on uh, LinkedIn because you had shared uh, a um, a post on post traumatic stress injury and uh, something I had never heard of before, which was uh, Save a Warrior. So uh, you're now an advocate for that group. So tell us a little bit about what uh, what that is and and what's going on with them. Well, Save a Warrior is a week long experience it's specifically for either veterans active military and or first responders Uh, the group was first created i believe about eight years ago and it was actually started out here in southern california in malibu it was started by one man jake clark and the whole mission behind the program is to help our heroes who are suffering from post-traumatic stress injury. What is very specific about this particular program is they focus on the complex post-traumatic stress. And that all starts with childhood trauma. And believe it or not, a lot of first responders and military folks don't wanna hear this, but often the job of being a first responder or a veteran, we're actually called to it. And there's a reason for that. And oftentimes it's because of trauma that we deal with as young children. Wow. And, and sometimes, and sometimes it could be as simple as just an emotionally distant parent. I mean, we're not talking about extreme trauma in all cases. It comes in a variety of forms. It could be addictive or alcoholic parents, abusive parents, or maybe they were physically or sexually abused by a family member. It could be a whole wide variety of issues, but what's kind of ironic is that this exposure to childhood trauma actually makes us very successful first responders and service members. Well, that's, that's, that's really amazing. I, I'd never heard that before. Never even, that was, that's not even on my radar. And I, uh, you know, certainly, you know, can't speak to, to how Robert and, uh, and Jose got started, but I, um, you know, this was sort of always my thing to do because every man in my family, uh, all the way down through as many generations back as I can think was either in a military uniform or a law enforcement uniform. And, you know, so, uh, I guess I'm one of the anomalies. I, I, you know, I, I had a great childhood growing up, uh, you know, and, and my parents were, uh, were you know great parents and did all they could for us um you know so uh that's a that's a really outside of my wheelhouse so that that's you know uh, I'm, I'm really curious to know more about this yeah if I well, can jump so in. oh go ahead if i can jump in i just that's an excellent point i'm I, i'm hearing you say this and in my point on my side i uh i lost both my parents by the time i was 10 years old and uh, grew up with a stepfather that was, you know, an alcoholic. Uh, wow. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, verbally abusive, physical abuse against my mother. 
So we see it. And as I become a cop, I saw myself in situations where I would go to domestic violence. I would go to different situations. And exactly what you say, I think growing up in the situation that I grew up in, inner city, low income, made me a better police officer, made me a better detective, especially once I got into narcotics because I knew how to talk to people. And I think I could see myself in a lot of the citizens that I ran into on the street because I came from a similar background. So I totally agree with this point that you're making. That's, that's right. That's right. And, and, you know, on the other side of that as well is that, you know, we're caretakers and we're used to taking care of other people. We're used to going in situations and taking charge. But along with that, at a young age, we also get conditioned not to show emotion, not to show that we're scared because it's considered a sign of weakness. And we have to be extremely strong from an early age on. And that just perpetuates through the whole culture, you know, of of being brought through our service academies and our police academies. and, And we're conditioned to be you know, go into these most dangerous and violent situations and be able to just take control without any fear whatsoever. Yeah. Now that, that's the part I can relate to from having all of those, you know, examples in, uh, in my family of, you know, those, those men who never showed any emotion, who were always so cool under pressure. That's, that's where I, you know, relate to that part of it. You know, one thing I'd like to say about the save a warrior program is the, the, most amazing thing about it is there's absolutely no cost for people to go through this program. It's actually hundred percent funded by donations. And all you have to do is physically get yourself to one of the two locations. Uh, they currently run it out of Simi Valley in Southern California. And the main campus is in Ohio. And it is an absolutely life-saving life-changing program i can't speak highly enough about it now i i don't want to go where you don't want to go but uh you know um you you have a pretty significant uh a trauma story and i don't even know it except the the brief part that i've, I've read in some of your uh, uh background stuff um but what i would say is that whether we have been in one of those uh traumatic you know uh active shooter incidents, or we just have years of experience of carrying everybody else's burdens, everybody in the first responder business uh, is suffering from some form of post-traumatic stress just by the nature of what we see. Uh, would you agree with that? hundred percent. The, the facts are that in an average career of a first responder, and this is a conservative estimate, but you are exposed to a minimum of 500 traumatic incidents throughout your career. And oftentimes this number is actually a lot higher. And when you look at the general population on average for the normal person, they may be exposed to one or two in an entire lifetime. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Tell us more about what your experience was uh, at Save a Warrior. You know, what, 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 what does that entail? What does that look like when, uh, when, when we take these warriors in and, and, and you know, advocate for them and, and provide this program? You know, well, here's the deal. I, I actually started my recovery process actually way back in the end of December 2016. And what led me to that point was I was involved in a fatal officer shooting where I killed a guy that was trying to kill a couple with a butcher knife. And it almost cost me my life and my partner's life. And I was in complete denial after years and years of suffering and my marriage falling apart, going through a federal lawsuit, getting diagnosed with cancer, just all kinds of just negativity and trauma. And it almost caused me to lose my life in another way. And so my point to that is that's when I first raised my hand and asked for help. And I started going through therapy. I went through another program that I volunteer for, which is the West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat. I go to first responder support meetings. I now speak. But I literally was in my recovery for two years. And I just went to Save a Warrior this past August. Right. And honestly, before going down there, I didn't think I needed it. I was going down there to get educated, to find out what the program was about, to have something that I could offer firsthand when I go out and speak to our first responders and our service members. And I didn't realize 
that this program was actually going to give me that missing piece that I needed to complete my recovery process. I mean, even after being in recovery for two years and doing all these other things, Save a Warrior gave me that last piece that I needed. And, and the beauty of this program is that when you go through it, you're in what's called a cohort. And that's a group. It's not, this program is not co-ed. It is for men and women, but they have separate cohorts. Right. And there's, there is a reason for that. And it's very effective. But when you go with your, through with your fellow cohort members, and like I said, usually it's 10 to sometimes 14 other members. And it's a mix of both law enforcement and military. And sometimes it's both. And in my case, that's what I experienced. And I literally thought I was going down there to talk about my war stories, to talk about the things I experienced as a security forces captain in the Air Force or as a police sergeant on the job. And that wasn't the case. Immediately, what they told us was that we're not here to talk about that stuff. In fact, we don't want to hear about it. We're going to talk about the root of a lot of this. And, and here's the key is that that childhood trauma, it makes the battlefield and the work trauma more difficult to deal with. And so they're stacked on top of each other. And so that's why you have to get to the root of the childhood trauma. And not only does it obviously help with that, but it's going to help you deal with the battlefield and trauma from the streets. And the program is, it's an experience. I mean, it is part educational, but it's literally an experience. And it's really hard to put into words, but I think to sum up a very powerful and poignant moment of the program is within the first day, you're in this group filled with men that you literally just met that you've never known before that are from all over the, the world in some cases. And these grown men share something that happened to them that they've never shared their entire life. Oftentimes, with their own spouses, family members, or partners. And they've been holding this in the entire time. And to see the power of these grown men to finally lift this burden off their shoulder with people they literally just met a day or two before, it's absolutely indescribable. Yeah, there, there's, there's nothing more powerful than being vulnerable in a group of other vulnerable people who also have the ability to pick you up. Absolutely. And that's the thing is that, you know, we talk about family and the job and the departments are there for us. You know, the department is an agency. They're a business. They have a job to do. Right. And there is people within the department that are family. But this is true family. These are brothers and sisters that absolutely have your back in all ways. And they love you to the fullest. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that is, that is so critical. And, you know, from, from a, a law enforcement perspective, when you look at, um, you know, addicts and, and, you know, you, you go and you respond to the call and you see what, you know, the, the addict is doing to their family and, and everything. And, and, you know, you do all you can, but uh, until that addict admits they have a problem, um, uh, you know, there, there's nothing that we can do. And, and it's such, it's so much the same thing, uh, with, with us as first responders, we, we have to admit that we're hurting and we have to admit, you know, that, that we're having a struggle and, and for, you know, alpha dogs, like we are, that's the hardest thing, you know, but to be in that room, uh, with people that, you know, have seen the same spilled blood and have the same scars that you have, um, you know, I can only imagine, you know, how powerful and how uplifting and how, uh, you know, just, just, uh, validating that is, uh, to be in that room. Well, that's the key is that you, you realize that you're not alone. And so many first responders that are out there suffering truly believe they're alone. And I, I know that for a fact, because that's how I felt for four years. Right. And there wasn't anybody that I trusted enough to share what I was going through with. And literally these are people that I served on the streets with for 14 years and I couldn't open up to them. I mean, how ironic is that, that we're willing to run into these most dangerous situations with our brothers and sisters and put our lives on the line in that way, but we're not willing to bring down the walls and yeah. be real. 
Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we'll risk our lives for anything, but not our egos. Well, can exactly. I jump in real quick? Yeah. Come on, Jose. Please do. Um, that's one of the things that always troubled me traveling all over the place. It's like people don't understand what first responders go through, uh, where they came from, what they're trying to do. And when they're having a problem, let's say, oh, man, this guy is getting divorced. Let's not talk to him. And they outcast people. And like you said, it's like you feel like you cannot talk to anybody. Um, and people just don't understand that. Um, well, I, I, I think, I've seen uh, it many a times. Yeah, and I think because you, you and I have talked about this before, Jose. And uh, Michael, uh, in, in full disclosure, Jose and I worked for the sheriff's office together before he went to DHS. Um, and, and so we share a lot of the same uh, background. But, uh, you know, you see, uh, you know, somebody, you know, that you work with that that's going through a hard time and you have to hold that wall up, you know, because you don't you're afraid that if you if you if you go in there and try to to lift them up, some of your vulnerability is going to slip out and, and and, you know, you can't have that. So you 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 can't reach out to your friends either and, and try and lift them up because everybody at the office is going to see and oh my gosh it's going to get out in muster you know the next day that uh, you know Jeff's got a problem or Jose's got a problem and and you know their problems are worse than Michael's problem and 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 it just you know it snowballs downhill you know so fast uh, so to to have that you know, ability in, in that, you know, and I, I hate the word safe space, especially in, in today's culture, but, you know, as first responders, we need that safe space too. Ours is just a whole different kind of safe space than, than, you know, what's in the culture today. Absolutely. And, you know, we're so quick as first responders to hammer our own and punish them you know, instead of getting to the root of why they're doing what they're doing, we automatically just want to drop the hammer. And, you know, you mentioned earlier about addicts. And also I can add into that alcohol abuse, mm-hmm. porn addiction, gambling addiction, uh, extramarital affairs. These are all coping and numbing mechanisms that are extremely negative and only make things worse. But they're absolutely prevalent among first responders. Yeah. And. And, and that's the thing is that, you know, we're used to dealing with that on the street and we just have a black and white mentality like, OK, you broke the law, you're going to jail. We don't get to the root of why is this person doing what they're doing, but we need to do that with our own brothers and sisters and we need to get them help. The reason why they're doing those things is to numb out this trauma, to numb out these feelings, to try to get rid of this depression you, you make you make such a great point there and and you know I want to jump to that for just a second um, you know you're comparing the the you know first responders to regular civilians and the truth of the matter is we're, we're all exactly the same the only difference between us and them is whether or not they're breaking the law but they're doing and we're doing the same exact things with the alcoholism and the, and the drugs and the uh you know the the adultery and and all of those other things that go right along with that we're just not breaking the law when we're doing it or you know if we are we're not getting caught and nobody's coming to check us out Absolutely. I mean, you, you nailed it. We are human. Yeah. And because of that, we are vulnerable. Because of that, we can die. We do have feelings. And it is normal. And that's why we have to change the stigma. We have to change the culture. If you make it okay to talk about this stuff and address it as it's happening, these things aren't going to blow up into these suicides and tragic incidents. And I want to bring up a point with that. And the simple fact is, as first responders, and when I say that, I mean police officers, I mean firefighters, paramedics, dispatchers, we are all much more likely to die by our own hands than the hands of another. And that is a fact. Yeah, and, and Jose and I were actually talking about this week, and, and we got to you know reminiscing about some of the people that we knew and worked with who have taken their own lives and uh, – you know, he knew some background on, on some things that I was not aware of. And then I knew some background on some other things that he wasn't aware. And, and, and when you start putting that together, you really see, 
you know, a, a big picture problem here. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it's just crucial that, that we as first responders who, who, you know, are the safe people for our brothers to talk to advocate for this. And so I, I am, you know, just so thrilled to have you here and talking about this. Uh, tell us how, somebody who needs this can can get in is there do they just go to save a warrior and and do an application that says hey i, I want to come or can somebody else fill one out on behalf of somebody and say look I, I really need you to go and and do this um you know because i care about you you know how how, how do we get people to these resources for save a warrior it's extremely easy you simply just google save a warrior a screen's going to pop up and there's a link that says go to main site. You click on that. In the upper left-hand corner, there's a drop-down menu, and it says apply to save a warrior. The process literally takes less than five minutes. You put your information in there. You put your contact information, most importantly. And they will actually schedule you what's called a rostering call, where somebody from save a warrior is going to call you, mm -hmm. and they're going to have a long conversation with you. And during that conversation, they're going to determine whether or not you're a good fit for the program. Because not, not everybody is, is fit for Save a Warrior. Right. I mean, they, you know, they can't solve all the problems, but right. they work on specific problems. But by having this phone call, it's going to determine whether or not you can go to the program. And they let you know right away. And the thing is, there is a waiting list for this program, like many others. Mm -hmm. um, but oftentimes spots open up last minute. So you can be on what's called like a standby list. And I personally have friends who were forecasted to go months out and literally they went within a couple weeks. I mean, it's literally can be that quick sometimes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it it's, it's just, it, yeah, it's just so easy. I mean, the process could not be any simpler. And like I said, it doesn't cost you anything to go through this program. They provide the housing, they provide all the meals and the snacks. I mean, everything is fully covered. All you have to do is physically get yourself to either Southern California or Ohio. It's that simple. Do, do you know, uh, Michael, if they have any plans to expand uh, campuses uh, and, and make this a little bit more accessible to people in other parts of the country? That I'm not sure of, but I can tell you that the main campus in Ohio is expanding and they're working on a multi-million dollar project to make it bigger to make it more accommodating and to get more people through that program so my understanding of that is as of now the main campus is going to be in ohio and the secondary campus is in southern california and so they are trying to increase the numbers but as far as i know it's just those two locations that, that might be a worthwhile project to find something closer to the to the southeast or the east coast uh you know, and, and, and broaden that geographic triangle to bring this to so many more people because it's such a, uh, a much needed uh, resource. Absolutely. And, and there are other programs out there. Like I said, there's another program that I volunteer for and I went through and that's called the West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat. And that one, they have spread out. They have them now in Oregon, Washington, Arizona, um, California, of course, and out in the Midwest, and that one is growing, and it's also a week-long program. That one is not for military. It's only for first responders, either former or current or retired first responders. Right. Well, I know that there are, you know, some peer support, uh, first responder peer support uh, programs, but I, I don't think they have any kind of an in-house type thing like you're talking about i think this is just one person who's trained to to go you know and and counsel you know with somebody uh you know following a critical uh critical event uh, and i actually uh was scheduled to uh attend one of those trainings and and just couldn't get it worked out uh because i had something else go on and I, and and i just could not get it rescheduled when when they called me and said hey we we've got an opening so hopefully I'm going to be able to uh, to participate in that uh, soon, but I, I'm not sure when. Uh, but, uh, Michael, thank you so much for being with us. We just really appreciate your time. We appreciate uh, all of this information. Will you come back on with us again sometime? 
Absolutely. I mean, that's my mission is I'm just out there trying to spread the word, let people know they're not alone and that it's never too late to ask for help. That, that's exactly right. If you still got a pulse, it's not too late. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Robert, uh, Jose, you got anything for Michael left? Yeah. And that's one of the things that I think the main, one of the main problems is basically that people are afraid to say that they're having issues or they're having a traumatic, you know, time because they think that everybody else in the department is going to think less of them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're talking about all this defunding the police and sending a mental health worker to a call. And well, who does that for us? It just seems like nobody ever wanted to open up. And it's like you couldn't talk to anybody. That's why this starts at the top. This starts with the leadership of our agencies. They have to be open. They have to be transparent. And I'm not talking about just having programs on paper and checking the box saying, hey, we have a peer support program. Because that's what I experienced early on in my career. I'm talking about leaders who engage and share. And you mentioned earlier in our interview about being vulnerable and opening up. That's the best way that you can help your fellow brothers and sisters is that you lead by example. And when you see they're having an issue, you initiate it and you open up yourself. And you share with them what you've gone through and how you made it through that. And that shows them they're not alone. And that has to start at the top. That's leadership. I agree with you. That's 100% right. Robert, you got anything? Sure, sure. I mean, I'm hearing this and uh, it's just, we've come such a long way. Uh, In 85, I was involved in an officer-involved shooting. Back then, you did your report. You went back on duty. There was nothing to go talk to anyone. You just, hey, don't be a sissy. Go back to work. And uh, exactly. <laughs> just last night, I talked to a buddy. He's retiring. Uh, we were we grew up together. Uh, he's retiring next Friday with 37 years. He was shot in the face in 94, a month before one of our other guys was killed in the line of duty. He finally got involved in a support group, I think, within the last year, because he's still suffering some injuries from his shooting. And he's telling me that once he went into this group, it was unbelievable how he said, I thought I was the only one feeling what I feel. And it, it's it, what I'm hearing what you're saying. I, I think it's something that needs to be more available to our officers, especially right now with all the uh, veterans. My generation, when I joined, all my senior guys are Vietnam vets. Right now, there's a lot of vets coming back from Afghanistan, right. Iraq, coming into law enforcement. So they're already bringing some baggage with them right. of stuff that they have seen overseas. And we can't have departments go back to the way they used to be where don't show any signs of weakness, go do your job and don't be a sissy. So it's uh, this program that you're talking about. Uh, I'm going to reach out to you uh, offline and send you the information or get your information to send it to my buddy. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you, uh, you know, you, you yeah, made I'll, one last I'll good share, point. I'll, I'll share your info, your contact info with Robert. Yes. too, Michael. Thank you. And, you know, you made a really good point there. But what I found in my volunteer work is that oftentimes officers don't realize how messed up they are until they actually retire. You know, we're so used to being operational and in the game and we just go from call to call to call. But I've seen it time and time again. A year, maybe two into retirement is when the shit really hits the fan. That's when our officers really look back and see how all this trauma in their career affected them in their lives. Yeah. I, I had some insulation from that. I, I, like you, I medically retired. Uh, I retired in 2012, uh, with, uh, 20 and a half years. And, um, you know, it took me almost two years to, to figure out actually what, what was medically wrong with me, uh, and, and get that, uh, get that treated. So, you know, I didn't have that downtime to, to think about all the other trauma because I was dealing with a different health issue. And uh, so once I got that done, you know, just the fact that I was finally healthy again was such a blessing that I didn't, I didn't think so much and, and spend so much time thinking about everything that I had dealt with uh, over the course of my career. Um, you know, but, but I see it in so many other people. And, and you know, again, uh, Jose and I have touched on this a couple of times just this week, um, you know, just by, by phone. And, um, you know, it's, 
it's so it's so uh, important for us. Uh, it, it, you know, we're always, that's part of what we are as first responders is we're, we're, we're people that give back to the community and, and what better way to do that than to give back to our first responders, uh, you know, from our own experiences and our own ability to sort of, uh, come to grips with this trauma and, 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 you know, let it empower us. Absolutely. Like I said, the key is to let people know they're not alone. And there is help, and more importantly, there is hope. That's, that's, that's a great word today, Michael. Thank you so much. Look, we're going to move on to some other things that we've got to cover. You're welcome to stay with us, but if you got to go, we understand. Um, and, and we just want to thank you for being here with us again uh, this week, and uh, we look forward to having you back again. Great. Thank you very much. We'll be in touch. Okay, Mike. Thanks. Take care. Yep. All right, guys, that was that was a lot of power in one segment right there. Um, you know, that's, uh, we need to, uh, we need to really look at, at expanding that program, but, uh, I want to move on. Um, and, uh, Robert, uh, Jose and I talked about this briefly, uh, yesterday, uh, the Houston police sergeant that was, uh, murdered by the illegal alien, uh, just days after he was released, uh, uh, from jail, uh, the, the guy's illegal, uh, he, he was involved in a domestic violence situation, multiple domestic violence situations over the last couple of months. He'd been, Jose, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think uh, he'd been taken into custody about four times uh, over the previous few months or weeks and then winds up, you know, going out and, and another DV situation and uh, kills a 40-year Houston police sergeant who was due to retire at the end of the year. Just horrible i heard about this uh i think i've talked to you before jeff the, my agency phoenix pd from the time i started my career uh in late 81 to the current time we've lost seven police officers to illegal aliens yeah. just our agency alone and that doesn't count uh dea which uh, my old partner was executed during a drug deal gone bad all the surrounding agencies and it's like but then we'll always hear that, well, per capta, per the numbers, uh, U.S. citizens kill more police officers. Well, you know what? There should be zero police officers killed by illegal aliens. They shouldn't be here. That, that, and especially, that. there should be no, none of this, the sanctuary policies where they say, well, he was arrested for just a nonviolent drug offense, so why should we deport him? Or he was for something else. They do not belong here. Well, and, and you bring up a great point that gets into a, a, another topic that I, I had on the, the list, and that is the, the, just the bail reform. You know, it's not just the illegal uh, immigrants that are getting out because they committed a nonviolent offense. Uh, you have just this week uh, in Minnesota, you have a suspect that's been released four to five times over the last couple of months uh, and has been back in jail uh, sometimes within hours of being released um you know and and one of the things and this came this came out of minnesota i don't know if you saw this uh but they said that uh these uh the these bail uh lack of bail reform laws and these high bails are, are causing uh minority offenders to uh have to offend more uh because they are are poor and and they can't uh, they can't get a job and i you know my first thought of that is it are the same liberals that are telling us we're born into how we behave uh you know we and how we choose we you know we, we we don't choose our gender we're born with our gender or our sexuality whatever that is are they now telling us that minorities are born predisposed to commit more crimes in poverty-stricken areas than than everybody else is i mean is that what the message is? <laughs> you, there's uh, one of the things on this point here where they'll say the, the part that gets me where they talk about nonviolent offenders. So I worked on a group where we would follow, we were a surveillance team. So you look at somebody that has no prior violence, but he's a drug addict. So that drug addict has to steal, rob, do whatever he has to support that drug habit. So maybe he starts out, uh, doing uh, organized boosting, organized shoplifting, where he shoplifts big items, takes to the dope man, gets his dope. Mm -hmm. Then maybe he gets a little desperate. He starts doing residential burglaries. 
this person has never had any violence in his life, but now he gets caught in the house while doing a residential burglary and he stabs a homeowner, a victim, and kills them. Because we have people on death row right now in Phoenix, in Arizona, that pretty much had no violence until they started, uh, when they became addicts and they do this brutal homicide because they got caught in a house, they're afraid to go back or get, get afraid to lock up as, as addicts because then they're going to hurt. And uh, oh, it's, it's maddening when I hear this. Well, nonviolent offenders. Well, just because we arrested him for a nonviolent offense doesn't mean he has a potential for being violent. That, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, we all start off as, you know, non-offenders. Yes. You know, yes. And, and, and then we make a choice. To, to go and, and, and commit a crime, whether it be a property crime or, you know, an identity theft or whatever it may be, you know, but it's only nonviolent uh, as long as you're not encountering somebody who confronts you. Yes. <laughs> you know, the, the minute you encounter somebody, it, 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 you know, that, 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 you know, confronts you with your crime and, you know, if they're going to run from the police or they're going to assault the police who are stopping them from committing a crime, uh, how many times have we seen people, and Jose, I know you can speak to this too, uh, we see people that we deal with all the time, and that one time that you give them a little bit of leeway, they either take a swing at you or, you know, they try to push past you, which is an assault, you know, even if they're not actively assaulting you, you know, the fact the, the fact that they use force to try and get by or get away from you, how much more so are they going to do that when they encounter a, uh, a citizen, you know, rather than a police officer? Right. There's career criminal squads. Every A lot of departments have the career criminal squads that target through intelligence, informants, and start targeting with your repetitive offenders, your career, career offenders. Sometimes you're looking for anything you can get them off the street because you know they're a danger to yeah. either burglaries or violence or whatever they're doing. And if you can get them for a shoplifting where you're following them and watching them do a major, you know, like boosting where they're stealing large, large dollar items. Or uh, I was in the storefront unit that we bought stolen property as an undercover team. One of the guys on my team bought a stolen car. The guy that he bought the stolen car had no priors for violence. He was just a car thief. Well, my buddy buys a car from this guy, and it turns out the guy says, I need to get the hell out of town. Well, he had jacked that car. It was a, it was a carjacking, and he burned the victim out in the desert and sold the car to, to my partner. So he had just killed someone for a car. And, but if you would look at the record, if we are not connected to homicide to him. He just looked like a car thief, just a car thief. That's right. it. Right. You know, I mean, it, it, it happens time and time again. Mm -hmm. And, and un unless you've been out there, and, and you've been in that environment, you have no idea what you're talking about. And, and right. so all these people that are screaming, oh, these poor people, they're, they're put in jail and, and, and their bail is so high. You know, well, there's a reason for that. You know, there, there, there's a reason. Nobody, nobody made them go out and break the law. Okay. I, I don't care what you believe somebody's, you know, national or local economic policies are. Uh, and what the job situation is like, none of that makes you. I know plenty of poor people that never go out and commit a crime and don't have two nickels to rub together. Of course. Uh, that's, a, that's, that's a personal decision to go out and make a choice to take something that belongs to somebody else, whether by deception or force, uh, and, and profit off of it. Yes, you guys poor about these people. Right, you guys started with this, uh, the officer, or the, the suspect that killed a Houston officer. Uh, is there a reason, is Houston a sanctuary city? Why was he not deported? Do we right. know that yet? Uh, I don't know, but uh, my understanding is that they had been dealing with him since 1989. Right. You know, and, and at one point he had a work visa that expired in 2000. So that's 20 years this guy has been here illegally. <laughs> Uh, you know, and, and who knows how many other uh, victims he's been terrorizing who didn't report it. You know, this is one domestic violence situation, uh, and, and the son who was wounded, his own son was wounded in, his, in this encounter where he killed this police officer and wounded another police officer, uh, was 14. So how many other kids does he have out there? How many other, you know, ex-wives or girlfriends does he have out there in that span between 1989 and, uh, you know, 
2006 when this uh, 14-year-old boy was born uh, that he's been abusing, beating, you know, doing, and, and they say, oh, it's a nonviolent offense. Well, it, it, they call it domestic violence for a reason. Yeah. Yeah, unbelievable. Unbelievable. There's uh, this, we've talked about it on the show before, uh, working in Phoenix, uh, you know, we're close to the border. We have, we have areas where if you do not speak Spanish, you're not, you're going to have dr- trouble working there, but uh, doing traffic stops or doing dope or doing uh, arrest, arresting 44 dope, you'll find somebody with 20 aliases, 30 aliases, and they've been deported so many times. They've been to the jail. Uh, they could, they could give us directions to the jail, probably give us shortcuts because they've been there so often. Right. They get deported and they come right back. Well, and look, unless that's not, that's not exclusive to Phoenix, because I've dealt with that here in Alabama and, yep. and dealt with a guy that we've arrested, had deported and arrested again, you know, yes. more than once. Uh, I mean, it's, it is not limited to the southern border states. It goes yes. on all across this country. Yes, for sure. For sure. Well, and one of the things about it, too, is a lot of times says, well, I made a, you know, made a mistake or I, I did a criminal act and I'm just going to send back to my country for free. Yep. So come back. I mean, I, I just don't understand why we do that. Um, yeah, you, you go home, they go, they get a free ride home. They go home, they high five their buddies, they uh, take a little vacation and then they come right back. So and that's, it's, that's exactly what it's like, isn't it, Robert? It, it really is like they get a little mini vacation. They drop off the radar a little bit, and then all of a sudden they're back. And, and I, I, Jose, I know, you know, when you and I worked at the sheriff's office that we, we experienced some of that as well. And uh, they know how to game the system. And they know how to play that victim card. And Jose, I don't know if you remember this or not. I'm gonna tell a story about you and me when we went to uh, we went to court, and we had a guy uh, that uh, they brought you into district court to uh, translate uh, on his case. And then I took him downstairs because I had a guy with me, a prisoner with me that had another case in circuit court, and. Uh, I made some kind of comment or a joke or something with the prisoner that I had down there. And the guy who swore he couldn't speak English started laughing at my joke. And I turned around and looked and he just started laughing. He said, you got me, man. So I turned around and marched him back upstairs to district court where we had him confess that he did speak English. <laughs> and, I remember uh, that. Do you remember that? Oh yeah. And, and, and judge Ewan dropped the hammer on him after we got back up there. Um, you know, so they know how to they know how to game the system. They know how to 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 you know get the court to show some pity on them. And and uh, and the bottom line is they're no different than anybody else we got here committing crimes. They just don't belong here. Yes, and and on this case, the Houston case, I remember when when it happened, the story broke. I'm reading the headlines. I'm going, and and one of my pet peeves is how we describe it now. We've become so infected with political yes. correctness. Yeah. that uh, I read even one of a conservative outlet, uh, I read that the headline read something like uh, the suspect that killed a Houston sergeant was, uh, what did it say? Unlawfully present. That's the word they like yeah. to use. Unlawfully yeah. present. And it's like, are you afraid to offend an illegal alien that killed a cop? You know, who are you going to offend? I mean, unlawfully present. Give me, give me a break. They're, they're, go- they're afraid they're going to offend all of the people that actually pay their advertising dollars and profess all of this, uh, you know, and, and, and I'm going to jump out on a limb here. We've talked about white guilt, but let's talk about American guilt, you know, and so many of these liberals have American guilt. They have nationalism guilt, uh, you know, and, and uh, Jose and I have talked about this, Robert, you and I have talked about this. This is the most exceptional nation in the history of the world right you know there's a reason for american exceptionalism because we're exceptional and everybody wants to be here they all want to be us and there's no reason for us to feel guilty about that because if we weren't exceptional they would still be suffering in poverty and and destitution in their home countries and have nothing to uh try to dream and aspire to if we weren't here and we weren't exceptional Exactly, exactly. You know, the thing with, with uh, we're so afraid to offend. And yet the, the problem is, I grew up in a Spanish speaking household, I grew up in a Spanish speaking neighborhood. 
the Spanish, the law-abiding Spanish speakers don't want these criminals in our neighborhood. Exactly. So, so exactly. we're not gonna. You're not gonna offend us. Uh, Look, you're not gonna offend us. I, I have. I have said. Ivan and I have talked about this before too. There is no harder working, more patriotic group than legal immigrants who have come here and achieved the American dream. They don't want these people. That they, they want. They're disgusted by them. They are, are abhorred that. Uh, you know, these people would come here and commit these crimes and hide under the guise uh, of an umbrella that they worked so hard to create uh, by achieving something and doing it the right way. The, the American dream is what it's about. Uh, I mentioned earlier to our prior guest, Steve, uh, Steve that we uh, had that I lost Michael, Michael, I lost, lost both my parents by age 10, grew up in a, you know, in a, in a broken household a broken gross household, low income area. And I, by the time I got to this pro working with you guys, I've uh, retired from the PD. I've traveled the world. I worked as a U.S. diplomat uh, representing the U.S. government, uh, dining with governors and ministers and, and in introducing ambassadors, U.S. ambassadors to my contacts. That doesn't happen in any other country. I didn't have a rich person some powerful person to put me in that position, but through hard work, it's possible in our country. And that doesn't happen. I've traveled, I've traveled the world. That doesn't happen without what we call in Spanish, without having a padrino, a godfather, because I didn't have a godfather. Yeah. And, and, and I, I can, you know, I know I can speak for, for Jose and say that nobody gave him anything. He's earned it. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm the, you know, the sole white guy here and nobody gave me anything. I've had a job since I was 15 years old, you know, and, uh, uh, I don't have any white guilt over that because I've got what I've got by working my tail off and, and providing for my family. And, of course. Uh, you know, uh, and, and there is pride in that. There is exceptionalism in that. There, there is, uh, you know, a victory in, in that because if we don't do it, then nobody's going to give us what we aspire to. They, they may give us a handout, but it's not going to be anywhere near what we need, what supports us, and, and, and what takes care of us and our families in the end. Of course. No, and I agree with you on that one. I mean, my thing has always been, you know, if I didn't earn it, I didn't deserve it. So Amen, I work hard for it. You know, if I couldn't afford it, that's fine, you know. Uh, but I didn't commit any criminal, you know, uh, acts or anything like that. It's just, if I earn it, I'm happy. That's it. Um, and, and one of the things about it is that, you know, we talk about um, – illegal people coming here and America being, you know, the great dream. Um, when I came here, I had a carry on bag and a guitar case. That's all that I had, I had nothing else. Uh, the guitar didn't do much for me. I had to work really hard, uh, but I work. <laughs> hey I work buddy, with... I've heard you play. It's not doing anything for you now either. All these years later. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, but one of the things about it is, is I went to work with my uncle. And he taught me a lot of lessons in life. And I had to work a sawmill with him and everything else. But one of the things that he did is like, look, we got all these immigrants coming in. They might be illegal. But, you know, he always hired the hardworking ones that were honest, had integrity, and they care about their family. Yeah. But some of these other ones that, you know, that come in here, they go, well, you know, we got to give them sanctuary. You don't know where they came from. Right. Uh, look at the Cuban immigration, you know, the Marielitos. Yeah. Hey, thanks, Jimmy uh, Carter. Yes. <laughs> Half of them were released from prison so because they didn't want him. Yeah, they weren't so, fleeing. Castro sent them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and hell, you, you want diversity? Uh, my name is Jose. Uh, I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. I'm not Puerto Rican. I'm half Irish, half Italian. Wow. You want any more than that? <laughs> oh, you one of my homeboys? I didn't know that. You 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 got a little Irish in you? Uh, yeah, part Irish, part from Scotland. There you go. <laughs> well, Robert, I know your your mother was Mexican, right? Yes. Yeah. Mother, so. uh, mother's Mexican, uh, father was from Cuba, but it was uh I lost my father before I was 4. 
and my mother died of cancer when I was 10. So I was raised by my maternal grandparents. Yeah. Yeah. So see, we, we all come from this great melting pot. We've all come here and we're all working hard, you know, and, uh, and, and I, I don't know anybody that, uh, you know, works hard for what they have that, uh, that tolerates this behavior un unless there's some kind of liberal that, that feels like they didn't earn, you know, what they've got. And, you know, if you didn't earn what you've got, if somebody gave it to you, if somebody, you know, handed you a, a, a job and a big paycheck and you really don't have to do anything to, to, to get that money, then maybe you, you do have a little bit of guilt, but I think you owe something to the rest of the people around you and not to somebody who comes here illegally and commits crimes. Right, and I think the misconception—the misconception that a lot of people think—is that uh, when they talk about the sanctuary policies, those sanctuary policies are pushed by obviously, but not people that live in those neighborhoods are going to be affected by those policies because the low-income, especially in a in a Spanish-speaking community, the criminals, the the career illegal alien criminal, because they are career criminals, will gravitate to those low-income areas and they terrorize those areas and there's a lot of hard-working people that are just trying to do you know trying to work and a lot of people can't come get out of those neighborhoods they don't want criminals in their area but for some reason the people that push the sanctuary policies think that uh the hard-working people are fighting for them they're not they they want they want their communities to be safe no they're, they're just they're, 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 it's it's an illusion and they're trying to uh, hold a voting block hostage right and, and I mean that, that's as criminal an offense as, as the the you know the punks that are living in their neighborhood and terrorizing these people on a daily basis uh, those politicians and, and their policies are just as criminal yes uh, let me uh, uh, kind of like jump to another topic I heard last night where they were talking about yeah. the talk yeah. the talk that that you that uh, the talk that that parents need to have with their kids because they're afraid they're going to get shot by the cops. And I'm sitting here thinking about it last night. Uh, when, in my undercover days, when I was buying a lot of dope as a young narcotics cop, I look like somebody you would. If I cruised to your neighborhood, you would stop me. Believe me, <laughs> the way I looked. I used to go into the projects. I used to go into South Phoenix. I was buying crack. I had black gangsters in my car at times i had mexican gangsters in my car because i was buying dope right. and i'm pulling out of the neighborhood and cops were pulling me over phoenix police officers who didn't know who i was so i did what they told me i yeah. got tickets at time they cited me and never found the dope i was holding but i didn't get shot because i did what i was told Good. i didn't start challenging i didn't become some ass that started getting confrontational and I think the talk that they talk about is do what you're told. That's yeah. it. Just do what you're told. Nobody has ever been killed by a police officer for following instructions. Ever. Comply with instructions. You leave that encounter safely. Now, you may leave in handcuffs, but you're going to be alive and you're going to be safe. If you put your hands up and, and, and do what you're told and, and it's a, a bad arrest, that's going to come out in court if you do it the right way. Right. It's just when I hear this, well, you got to give them the talk. Well, I had to talk with my kids and I told my kids is, hey, if I find out that you got pulled over and you were being disrespectful, then you're going to have problems with me. Right. And my son was getting pulled over. You know, he got pulled over quite a few times. And of course, uh, he would tell me, uh, I think I don't think he ever got a ticket. Uh, the thing that helped him it was when he started getting pulled over, he was already he was on home from leave from the Marine Corps. They'd see his bumper sticker, so they were letting him go. But uh, it wasn't like he was doing anything stupid. He's just, hey, we're going to stop you. You're speeding or whatever. Right. How many times you stop somebody in a traffic stop, and it's just an educational contact. We're telling them, hey, slow down. Slow down. Slow that's down. Right. That's it. But or, if hey, you get it, you, you got a tag light out. You got a tail light out. You know, uh, I've even made stops. Hey, you got a low tire. You know, you need to go right. get your tire taken care of and made an arrest out of that you right. know, because, because, you know, the, the driver escalates the encounter. Right. I had a, an old boss that I worked for that used to call me and tell me uh, all these problems. It, it, he would tell me that I just got stopped and this is what happened. But then 
like he tells me one day that yeah the officer gets up to my window and i noticed that his his patch his patch on his uniform he was not in the county he was from the neighboring county so immediately asked the cop are you really supposed to be stopping me you're not even in your own county and i told him why you listen here everybody thinks there are some law expert police policy expert that when you get sworn in at least in arizona you have jurisdiction throughout the whole state and i said if I, you would have told me that, I would have said, stand by. I am now going to become an ass for you. You watch this. But it's just like, just be cooperative. You know, I mean, yep. most cops, I never was much into giving tickets, but uh, just just cooperate. Don't, be, uh, don't become a, uh, a uh, wannabe lawyer and think you're going to outsmart because you're not going to win that battle. Look, I, I know lawyers here that, that advise their clients incorrectly particularly on uh, civil matters. Yes. I can't tell you how many times, so, uh, you know, I would talk to a complainant and, and, and they want me to go do something that by policy or law we don't do. And they say, well, my lawyer said, and, you know, and I explain to them, well, that's not ha- what, what's going to happen here today. And the next thing I know, I'm getting a call from the attorney. And, and I'm like, did you graduate law school? I <laughs> You know, because you don't know what you're saying to your client. Right. You know, I mean, you know, so it's 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 amazing how everybody suddenly thinks that they know what the police are supposed to do. Uh, and, and and they're wrong time after time after time. Right. Because if you try to get confrontational, you're going to make the officer respond. Yeah. And uh, we're human. Okay, oh, yeah. We're human. Yeah. So if you start being a smart ass, we're going to be a smart ass right back. Look, I got to I got to I got to tell this story one time because I, I actually got called on the carpet for it. Uh, and uh, Ho- Jose knows my lieutenant who uh, called me in. It was Lieutenant Lake, Jose. Uh, and um, uh, I, I stopped a guy with a Minnesota. It was actually a Minnesota. We've had Minnesota stuff going on all over the all over this podcast a lot. But this guy was from Minnesota and and um, he he cut me off and almost hit me and then sped up and and started exceeding the speed limit and so when i pulled him over i was in an unmarked uh uh car and uh and i walked up and uh and he said the first thing he said before i said anything in minnesota the unmarked cars can't pull you over yes you know i'm looking around like what am i on candy camera so i said sir i need to see your your driver's license and your uh, insurance card please and he said in minnesota we don't have to show our insurance card and, and so I, you know, I'm doing all this and he keeps saying in Minnesota, we don't. And finally I said, you better click your heels together, Dorothy, because you are not, well, because you're a certain anatomy part of you uh, are not in Minnesota. Yeah. Anymore. And uh, so I write the guy a ticket and I go on and about, you know, 15 minutes later, Lieutenant Lake uh, calls me into his office and he says, uh, did you call a guy Dorothy on a traffic stop? And I said, well, he thought he was in Kansas or maybe Minnesota. And uh, so I had to explain to him that uh, that he needed to click his heels together and understand where he was. And, and I just got the head shake and the, the palm rub over the face. And, you know, hey, don't do not do that. You know, be polite, be professional. And I said, well, I tried all I could. Yeah. <laughs> but he just, he Minnesota'd me one too many times. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I think one of the things about it, too, is that uh, – People don't understand what we have to go through. I mean, we go to a yeah. call and we don't know what we're going to encounter, mm-hmm. um, who we're going to encounter, you know, what ethnicity they're from, you know, they are, where they're from or anything else like that. And we have to like gather all the information like in split seconds and go for it yeah. and make the right decisions. Yeah, we're, we're expected to make every correct decision as an attorney, as a police officer, as a uh, paramedic, uh, as a, a uh, counselor, as a priest, uh, and as a public administrator, all in a split second, while everybody else has hours and days and weeks to armchair quarterback every decision we make. And it was bad enough back in the day when we didn't have uh, – viral videos and and you know cell phone cameras and everything uh and uh you know we you know would still get you know into into these uh contested uh community debates about things 
And now when they share a, you know, 10-second video snippet uh, and, and we're under the microscope, when the encounter actually took 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, uh, you know, to escalate to that point, but nobody shows that video. And, and uh, you know, the bottom line is we, we have to make a split-second decision in a constantly evolving uh, scenario. Exactly. That's that's just so so great. Look, we are we are out of time. Uh, I, I, Robert, Jose, I didn't get to near what I had on my list, but uh, you know we can uh, we can do more of this uh, next week uh, on Friday, uh, off duty law enforcement Fridays. Um, but that's all we've got uh, uh, this week, and uh, we're gonna have to uh, we're gonna have to close this out. Maybe Ivan will be back with us next week. Uh, but uh, that's all for Law Enforcement Fridays, off-duty on Battleground. Tune in and see us next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>